Good morning, every nation. Brian Stent, I'm glad you chose to join us this morning. My name is Joel Bryce, and I am finishing our series, Strangely Dim, this morning. I'm talking about Sabbath and rest. You know, the first sermon I ever gave, I'm not a vocational pastor, but the first uh, sermon I ever gave was 20 years ago, and it was on rest. This is what I looked like 20 years ago. You're welcome. Uh, that afro is real. Uh, <laughs> I show that simply to say I've been thinking about this topic for a long time. Um, I've been thinking about rest for a long time. And so I think I got a little bit, just a little bit, just a, just a tad of credibility in this, on this subject. So the word rest in Hebrew is a Shabbat. That's where we get the word Sabbath from. It's perhaps though directly translated in Hebrew as stop, to stop. Where does this notion of Sabbath come from in the Bible? So it comes from, uh, firstly, the Ten Commandments. Now the Ten Commandments are twice in the Bible, once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. The first three commandments are all around our relationship with God. You shall have no other idols. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. The last six commandments are all about our relationship with our neighbors. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. And then smack in the middle, commandment four is you shall remember and observe the Sabbath. It's a little as if Sabbath and effective rest bridges our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbor. But secondly, it comes, if you have to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis. I think we all know this, on the seventh day, God rested. It's the only of the Ten Commandments that is embedded and entrenched in the creation narrative itself. So why are we talking about it? Well, Ephesians 5, verse 15 to 16 says this. It says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Tim Keller explains in his commentary on, on Sabbath that the word redeem here is more of a commercial word. It's a marketplace word. It might be more directly translated, earn a generous return on your investment. It's, it's, it's making it rain, but make it rain from your time. Redeem your time because the days are evil. See, Sabbath, effective rest, effective stopping is about stewarding ultimately our time. Do you know that you're no more productive at 75 hours of work per week, as you are at about 50 to 55 hours a week. Stanford University Economics Department conducted a study and found that up to a certain point, your output per hour increases as you work more. But after that point, your output per hour declines as you work more. Conclusion. Focused and effective work for 50 or 55 hours is going to be better and you will be more productive than continuing on for 70 to 75 hours. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, Joel, but you don't know my boss. 
You don't know my job. Okay, that's true. I don't. But I have had demanding bosses and jobs and I've over the course of having spent hours working. In fact, one story, I used to work in management consulting. Uh, did it for longer than I probably anticipated, did it for about six years. And my, the, the, the management consulting model was this. Monday morning, I would be on a flight so that I could walk into my client's offices by 9 a.m. Monday morning and I would fly out Thursday night. I'd get home often around midnight. In that four days, I would work usually around 60 to 80 hours within those four days. I remember once sitting in the hotel lobby of some podunk hotel in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where a struggling paper company um, is located. And I remember sitting there in this, in this hotel lobby with the analyst on our team, and we had a deadline the next day. And I remember the ladies coming out to bring breakfast for the next morning, it must've been 4.30 or five. And I turned to the analyst and I said, we've been here all night. What I'm getting at is I work hard. I, I have worked hard in my life and I continue to today and I love kind of working hard, but I have learned what effective rest looks like. There's not much that I have credibility in when I speak, but I think I've just begun to gain some credibility in this notion of effective rest. So here's what we're talking about today. Why we rest first, second, work and rest, and third, how to rest. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. Um, let's all together take a deep breath in. and exhale. We breathe you in, God. And we exhale our burdens from our weak. We position our hearts to hear your voice, God, as we stop. Teach us to rest. Amen. Okay, first, why we rest. Outer rest of the body starts with inner rest of the soul. A few realities that we have that I observe today that would suggest that effectively resting is much harder today, certainly than it was 2000 years ago when Jesus said, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest but even more so than just 30 years ago. So I'm just gonna give a couple of observations and we all know this. First, advertising industry. You today see on average 5,000 ads per day. And the advertising industry looks at you as soon as your cognitive consciousness begins. New York Times published an article entitled, Anywhere the Eye Can See, It's Likely to See an Ad. It had this story that in 2019, Disney advertised its new, like a new kids movie on the pediatric tables, the examination tables in pediatric offices of 2000 doctors. The advertisement industry begins to communicate to you as soon as you have cognitive consciousness. And today through apps, through, through billboards, through mobile, through radio, we, we are bombarded with 
noise. We're not good enough. We don't have enough. Look at how beautiful that place is, that thing is, that person is. And what it leads to is inner restlessness. Second, social media. Again, you know this because you probably have engaged in social media in the last five minutes that I've been talking. Maybe, maybe not. No judgment. The average smartphone owner uses eight different social media platforms and spends two hours and 29 minutes on those platforms every day. But we all know this, curated content on Instagram. I generally post pictures about my family or my girls, but it's kind of best self forward. Twitter, we post our kind of curated pithy statements about something or articles that make us seem intellectual or LinkedIn our best career moments. We all know this to be true, but scroll through any of these platforms for just 15 to 20 minutes and you're left with an inner restlessness. I know that you know what I'm talking about. Third, connectedness and technology. The idea that this little device, the size of my wallet could carry information that about anything in the world, connect me with anyone in the world at any point, would have baffled our minds 30 years ago. And today we live with it as if it's normal. I remember the first time I saw an iPhone, it dates me a little bit, but you know, you already saw the picture of 20 years ago, so I'm dated already. But I remember the first time somebody showed me their iPhone. I had a flip phone at the time and I was looking at this guy's iPhone and I was like, wow, I didn't even understand WhatsApp and email and the like. So these three realities, I think, have resulted in us being bombarded with noise in ways that even our parents, the generation just before us don't know. We live with inner restlessness. I also know this is true because as I was researching for this sermon, the amount of content that I was able to find on Sabbath and rest from people who I really respect and, and, and trust, like multiple sermon series on Sabbath and rest, clearly we're inundated with noise. We are restless. But it's deeper than that. We live with an inner murmur for meaning. We have an inner unrest. Ultimately, it's around we need to prove ourselves. We need to find meaning and purpose. And we even find meaning and purposeness in our busyness. Ask somebody, how are you? What's the most common response likely? Good, just busy, right? And you know what I know to be true? You reap what you sow. And when you sow busyness, you reap restlessness. I think John Mark Comer said that. John Ortberg said this, busyness is not just a disordered schedule. It is a disordered heart. Oh, that's good. So C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, um, one of my favorites, talks about how we all have a deep internal longing. And he talks about how we have three responses to that longing. The first response is the fool's response. He says, I long for love, I long for adventure, I long for new experiences, and I keep looking, I keep seeking these new experiences to find them. Here, here's what C.S. Lewis says. The fool goes on all his life thinking that if only he tried another woman or went for a more expensive holiday or whatever it is, 
then this time he really would catch the mysterious something we are all after. And he says, most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the world are of this type. The second type, the second response to that inner murmur, that inner longing, is the disillusioned way. The disillusioned way says, there's nothing at the end of the rainbow. All is vanity. It's the ecclesiastic poem. All is vanity. You're just chasing the wind. So therefore, the response is just to kind of become bitter and disillusioned. But there's a third way, the way of Jesus. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, we live with a disordered heart, an inner murmur, and it's addicts exponentially increased by the restlessness and noise of today's day and age. So what do we do? We have to turn to another world, to another order. This is what Jesus says. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. Is it any coincidence that that little bit, that little famous scripture that is on magnets and, you know, I don't know, Christian blankets, um, immediately, I don't know why I said Christian blankets. Is that, does that exist? Christian blankets? No, uh, stay, stay on track, Joel. If, if, if you look at that little verse though, immediately after that are two stories about the Sabbath. That's immediately what happens next. It's as if Jesus is saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then there's something about Sabbath that's important. Something about a stop that's important. Let's carry on. So in, into chapter 12, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Skipping to verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the thing. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. I, I find it fascinating what he didn't say as much as what he said. What he didn't say is, we don't have to observe the Sabbath anymore. He, t he actually just said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the stop. I'm the Lord of the rest. We have to go to God to find rest for that inner murmur in our souls. You see, outer rest of the body, we can't really effectively outer rest unless we first begin to deal with that inner restlessness in our hearts. Okay, second, 
Work and rest. Okay, I wanna talk about work. It's slightly off topic when you're talking about rest, but I don't think you can effectively rest unless you effectively work. God worked for six days and then he rested. It's a rhythm of creation, the work and the rest. There's a dance of work and rest. We're awake and then we sleep and we're, we're subconscious. We, can't, we, we don't perceive reality. It's this rhythm in creation. I work in, in kind of an agriculture, more in investing, but within an agricultural context. The land, literally the land needs to rest in order for nutrients to be replenished in the soil. If you plant in the soil year after year after year, eventually the nutrients are depleted and your yield reduces. There's this rhythm in creation for work and rest. And today, I know that many of us probably have different relationships with work. Some of us are praying for work. We're desperate for work. We're unemployed. Some of us probably are in a job and we're bored. We're not fulfilled. Or we want more. We want something different. Some of us might be workaholics and we're working too much and we don't like our work, but we're, we're kind of stressed and we're under pressure. But here's what I'm going to get at. If regardless of those three categories, we all know that we were made for work. We were made for purpose. For six days, God worked. You see, work provides incredible source of meaning and purpose. University of Michigan professors conducted a study, get this, on 7,000 adults on purpose and longevity. And they found that people with a strong life purpose, they defined it as this, they defined it as a self-organizing life aim that stimulates goals. So people who have that, a strong life purpose, were twice as likely to outlive those who did not. Furthermore, the professors found that having a life purpose was more important to reducing the risk of death than even things like stopping drinking or smoking or starting exercise. Work can provide us with that incredible sense of purpose. And, 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 and work is a, is, is a good thing. Even pressure is a good thing. Even stress is a good thing. I've learned that, that stress can be a good thing in my life. There's a chart on the slide right now. On the x-axis is pressure. On the y-axis is performance. As pressure increases, performance increases as well, up to a certain point. But after that point, when pressure continues to increase, we all know this to be true. It's too much pressure. We feel fatigue. Eventually, so much pressure, whether that pressure comes from ourselves, from our jobs, from, our, from just pressures of life, from, from a boss, it becomes too much, we, we can burn out. But below that peak point, not enough pressure, and we're bored and we're complacent. You see, pressure can be an incredibly good thing. Okay, I'm gonna quote another study. I know I'm quoting lots of studies today, but it's because rest is well-researched. A study conducted of 30,000 adults over eight years found this, that people who have experienced a high degree of stress for long periods of time in their life have 43% higher risk of dying. But here's the key, it's only true for those who believed that stress was harmful for their health. Those who experienced the same stress but didn't believe it was a problem for their health, health were more healthy, had, had less risk of dying than those who believed stress is a bad thing. So stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, it, for me, 
it's, it's that, that feeling of like pressure and stress that ultimately results in better performance. So work is important. Working hard is important. But after God worked, he rested. So was he tired? That's kind of how we define rest, right? We rejuvenate after working hard. We rejuvenate. We're, we're tired. But let's read the text in Genesis 1. So this is Genesis 1, uh, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the multitude And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So when God rested, what did he actually do? We get a bit of a hint of it in this text. It says, God saw all that he had made. So it was like reflected back. He looked at all that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. He celebrated. There's reflection and there's celebration. That's what God did when he rested. Okay, so reflection. Something happens when we reflect on what we have done. There's a Jewish rabbi, Elijah of Vilna. Here's what he said. God stopped to show us that what we create becomes meaningful to us only once we stop creating it and start to think about why we did so. Isn't that so interesting? God stopped to show us that what we create becomes meaningful to us only when we stop creating it. One morning this week, I was stressed out with some stuff going on and I was up really early. I was like four or 4.15 and I read this Psalm. It was Psalm 77. And I was fascinated by something that popped out at me for the first time that I've I've not noticed before. For the first 10 verses, it's essentially the psalmist complaining. This verse sums it up. Has his steadfast love ceased forever and his promises at an end for all time? It's kind of this complaint before God. And then, so that's the first 10 verses. Then verse 13, it says, your way, O God, is holy. So what happens in between that? In between the complaint and the worship was reflection. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your works and muse on your mighty deeds. You see, reflection lets us remember of God's faithfulness. So God reflected and he celebrated. But here's something I like to think about. Was the work of the garden done when God rested? No, of course it wasn't done. The garden was growing. It needed tending. The trees needed pruning. But God stopped. God said, enough. It was as if God was saying, I'm going to trust the process of the garden's growth overnight. It doesn't need me. You see, taking Sabbath, taking a stop from our work, is ultimately an act of trust, that the garden doesn't need you, that your work doesn't necessarily need you, that even maybe God doesn't need you. 
So there are two times that I said at the beginning when the Ten Commandments were given in the, in the, in the Bible. The first was in Exodus, soon after the Israel, Israelites left Egypt under, under the, the kind of the, as slaves from Pharaoh. So that was like soon after they left Egypt, they were in Exodus, the Exodus story. Okay, Ten Commandments are given. Forty years later, the Ten Commandments are given in Deuteronomy. So it's like a generation. Firstly, the commandments are given to the parents. Forty years later, just before entering the Promised Land, they're given the Ten Commandments again. And I read them side by side, and they're almost identical, except one small difference that comes in at the 40-year-later mark. It's in Deuteronomy 5, verse uh, 15. It says this. So this is on the fourth command around Sabbath. Seventh day is the Sabbath unto the Lord, you shall rest. And then it says this, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. John Mark Homer in Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So he says, um, he kind of, actually, frankly, I'd highly recommend that you read this book if you're interested in Sabbath and rest. He has spent so much time and, and he's been such an incredible resource for me as I've been thinking about this message. But he talks about this difference between the Ten Commandments given in Exodus and the Ten Commandments given in Deuteronomy. And he says this, in Exodus, the Sabbath command is grounded in the creation story, in the rhythm that God built into the world, a rhythm we tap into for emotional health and spiritual life. That's the reason to Sabbath. But in Deuteronomy, the command is grounded in the Exodus story, in Israel's freedom from slavery to Pharaoh and his empire. That's a whole other reason to Sabbath. You see, taking Sabbath, taking effective rest, taking a moment of stop in our week is an act of liberation. I am not the one who keeps my world running. It's an act of liberation against what we've been enslaved to in Pharaoh's world. Remember, they'd left Exodus and they were told, you gotta effectively rest. They remembered they were slaves, but 40 years later, they're children. As 40 years have passed, remember you were slaves, therefore, effectively rest. Tim Keller says, Sabbath is the deliberate limitation of productivity as a way to trust God and be a good steward of yourself and declare freedom from slavery to your work. Okay, third, how to rest. So Sabbath is a way of life, not a day, but it's also a day. So I wanna get a bit practical, okay? How do I work effective stopping, effective reflecting, and celebrating into my daily rhythm. Okay, so I'm gonna get super practical and I'm gonna make you uncomfortable. Three things I do. There's actually 10 things I do, but I'm gonna give you three, okay? Three things I do. One, my phone isn't in my bedroom when I go to bed at night. I don't check my phone for the 30 to 60 minutes before I go to bed. Now, there's a lot of science to support this. The blue light emitted from our phone in a dark, place actually reduces our body's production and ability to produce melatonin. We will sleep less deeply by looking at our phone moments before going to sleep. 
That one's easy for me. The second one that I do is really hard for me is I don't look at my phone for the first 60 minutes after I wake up. I don't look at my computer for the first 60 minutes after I wake up. Now, the problem is I have a job that there's been a lot going on because I go to bed early and I wake up early. So there's been a lot going on in the evening, generally. There's, there's WhatsApp messages about meetings in the morning. There's emails that have been circulating. And I feel that I need to engage with that. That's how I feel. So it becomes an incredible act of discipline and habit that I've worked into myself that still requires daily discipline. And I know it sounds probably ridiculous to some of you that I do not go to my phone or my computer for the first 60 minutes. I, I intentionally want to protect my rest. It's an intentional daily reminder that I'm liberated, that my work does not define me. And I go to the source of rest my definition being somewhere else than my work, because I'm very inclined to find my worth and my meaning in my busyness. And my phone and these devices happen to just pull me in. So that's a simple discipline I do. And the third is I turn off push notifications. In fact, on my email, I have to go on my phone three screens over to my mail app I have to click on it and pull down the mails. I don't want to see my email go from three, four, five, six. I don't want to hear the click. I don't want to hear the ding. I turn off all notifications. That's just something I do to get Sabbath and the stop into my daily rhythm. You see, effective rest is first protective and then it is proactive. Let me explain what I mean. It's like it's defensive before it's offensive. You have to say, know and create space for yourself first and then and then you know you know what actually i would say this it's probably easier for most of us to implement certain rules of saying no but the hard part is then what do you do with the time what do you do with the space i think a lot of us probably confuse restoration with relaxation. We might turn to, okay, now I have space. Okay, I'm not gonna look at my phone for the 60 minutes before I go to bed. What do I do? Maybe I start to watch Netflix. You know what I've found? You can binge watch a series of Netflix. I'm not sure that something you might say after doing so would be, man, I feel so rejuvenated. You see, there's a difference between relaxation and restoration. Restoration is more proactive. Relaxation might be good in certain, in certain you know, contexts. I certainly like do relax, relax in certain ways, but there's something that happens when we proactively go after rest. What do we do with the space that we create? So Judith Shulovitz, Jewish author, um, who wrote, wrote an article in the New York Times, and he, Here's something that she said. She's obviously Jewish, so she observes the Sabbath. Here's what she said. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. But the inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily. That is why the Jewish Sabbath was so exactingly intentional. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will, one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. You see what I was getting at with me when not checking my phone, there's habit that I have to like strengthen, but also social sanction. My wife kind of has to be on the same page in terms of like, 
I go to bed early and I don't have my phone there and I don't check my phone. And there's like, and my friends kind of know that about me. So here's what I'm trying to get at. Effective rest is not just ceasing to work. Effective rest is unto something else. When the command was given in Exodus, here's what it says. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You see, it's not just a day off. It's, it's a day unto. It's not just kind of a day for myself. It's a day and a, or a period of time for God to be kept holy. Mary Oliver, the poet, says, attention is the beginning of devotion. Okay, so let's talk about Sabbath briefly as a day itself. So this guy, he's a pastor in Portland who wrote the book that I referenced earlier, John Mark Comer. He and his family observe, observe Sabbath just like Orthodox Jews would. Sundown Friday to sunset to sundown on Saturday. So 24 hours where they turn off all of their devices. They gather as a family. They light two candles, one to, to observe the Sabbath, which is what's said in Exodus, and the second to remember the Sabbath, which is what is said in, in Deuteronomy. And then they, they have a big feast together as a family and they talk about their week. They reflect back on their week with, with what are we grateful for? What did we learn? Where did we find meaning? And then they celebrate, they drink wine and they eat fun food. And for 24 hours, they disconnect from their work, from all the demands of the work. They, they don't buy anything. They don't talk about buying things. They simply have a day unto God. Now, that kind of like has inspired me and us. I think it's been harder for me to incorporate into our lives as a family for 24 hours every week like that. But we've certainly like taken aspects of it. A question that I was asking this week, it's a kind of a theological question, which is, do we as Christians need to observe the Sabbath? And I found it kind of fascinating, the commentary on this question. So some New Testament theologians who I really respect, like N.T. Wright, argues that we don't need to observe the Sabbath as Christians today because it was made redundant with Jesus. We have the source of all rest with us via the Holy Spirit that we don't actually need to observe the Sabbath. There's a lot of commentary supporting that. Other commentaries suggest that Jesus never argued about observing the Sabbath. He just argued about how to observe the Sabbath and about not being religious when observing the Sabbath. Here's the, my conclusion. I don't really know. I don't know the answer. If you were supposed to, as Christians, observe the Sabbath, as I just described it for 24 hours, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. But I do know this. In Mark 2, here's what Jesus says about the Sabbath. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for mankind and not mankind for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for mankind. It's a gift. We don't have to accept the gift, but maybe there's something there when we do. I'll leave that with you. You decide. Okay, but tell me what you decide, because I'm curious if anybody actually begins to observe if you do, or if you begin to observe, I'd love to hear about it.
Okay, in conclusion, consistent with this series that we've been doing on um, on this kind of strangely dim, which which is, we've had like these reflective moments each week, we don't have time today. However, I'm going to give you an assignment that I'd ask you to share with your Connect group, okay? So here's the assignment. There are four categories of rest. I kind of, me and a buddy developed these a few years ago. There are probably more, there might be less, but we've developed four categories of rest, okay? First is sensory rest. Second is emotional rest. Third is mental rest. Fourth is physical rest. Okay, sensory rest. The state of denying oneself the clutter of daily distractions. We all know what this is. It's what I just described. It's removing technological stimuli, sensory rest. Second, emotional rest. Removing burdens that weigh on our hearts and that cause us to kind of um, react based on kind of our, our quick emotion rather than respond out of, out of a grounded perspective, emotional rest. Third, mental rest. Mental rest is slowing the activity and ideally stopping the activity of what we're thinking through and, and filling our minds with something that is more life-giving or refreshing. This one is the hardest one for me in particular. I find my mind is always thinking about maybe work or things going on with, with, with just work and, and related. And fourth, physical rest entails the relaxation of the body. We all engage in this in some way because we all sleep every day, right? So here's what I want you to do. There's gonna be a slide that has a template, but actually on the, on the right side, on the comment box, there's gonna be an exercise. Um, I want you to download that document and what you're gonna see in it against each of these four categories of rest are two questions. The first, what do I need to stop doing to experience rest in that dimension? That's the protective rest. And the second question, what do I need to start doing to experience that rest proactively? I've included an example there as well. Um, for example, for me, let me just give you my mental rest one. So for mental rest for me, what do I need to stop doing to experience rest? So for me, Another rule, but as I said, I got a lot of them. I've just shared with you a few. I don't check my work email on my phone during the weekend. I found that when I do, immediately, my mind is taken somewhere else and I'm not present at all in my moment. So what I've done is now I have a job that I have to check my email and respond to stuff over the weekend. So what I do is I set up chunks of time where I go into my office, open up my computer, and engage in work and then step away from it and close it off. I don't check my work email on my phone during the weekend. That's a protective measure. So then the next question, what do I need to start doing to experience rest proactively? So against mental rest, for me, it's then be fully present in the moment. See, I could, rather than just not checking my work um, email on my phone, be thinking about work and feeling anxious that I haven't engaged with my work and what if something's come in instead of proactively being present with my friends, family, or alone time. So will you do me a favor? And I think it'll be ultimately doing you a favor and do this exercise this week and share it with your connect group. Okay, let's wrap up and pray. Jesus, I, um, I thank you that we can come to you when we are weary and you will bring rest for our souls. I just pray that um, we would learn what it looks like for each person individually to effectively 
Shabbat, to effectively stop, to reflect, to celebrate on our work, to know that work is good. And if we're praying for work today, I pray that God, that you would hear that cry of our heart. If we're bored in our work today, I pray that you would hear that cry in our heart for meaning and purpose. And if we're working too much and we're overwhelmed and we're on the brink of burnout, I pray, God, that you would help us set boundaries around what effective rest looks like. Yeah. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Amen.